if you're new, a special welcome. If you're a guest here, I'm glad you're here that you're with us here today. We've been going through a series called The Journey of a Lifetime, and I began the series asking this question. If I said something like this, Sally, Susie's over here, and she needs to know how to walk toward Jesus. Move towards spiritual maturity. Would you go over and begin a walk with her and disciple her and take her and help her move toward that level of maturity where she really understands him and loves him? If I gave you that assignment, where would you start? What would you do? Would you tell that, tell Susie, Susie, you need to memorize the book of Leviticus is the first thing you need to do. And you go, no, probably not. See, but what are the things that she would need to know? What are the things that her heart would need to embrace? What are the things that, even skills that she would need to learn in terms of helping that person go toward Jesus? That's the picture that we have for this series. And I want to put the theme verse again up on the screen, and I hope we'll have this memorized here in a couple of weeks. It, look how it reads, 128 from Colossians. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You know, we have a number of school teachers and homeschool teachers here in our, our congregation here this morning. And, and it's interesting when you look at the public school system, and you, for example, you go to first grade, and there is an outcome of what they want for a first grader in terms of social skills, in terms of learning that, the, beginning the, the stages of reading in that, in that first grade. You jump to sixth grade, more complexity is put into the equation, more expectations in terms of where they're supposed to read. My daughter is a sixth grade teacher, and they have outcomes of where they want those kids to be. And then you fast forward to when they're juniors and seniors. They need to become problem solvers. They need to be a place where they can understand more complex math and more reading in, in, in terms of retention and understanding. And then they're actually taking classes that might be pointed toward their career someday. When you look at that intentionality in the school system, and then you come back and apply it to making disciples. Do you understand the tension that we have? In that. See, go, Sally, do, where do we start? Where do we start? Here's the framework that we've been laying out for you. First John chapter 2, I'm going to put it on the screen. But, but I'm not going to read it here because I want you to note the underlying words. You've got to catch this because in this text, there really implies three different stages of movement towards spiritual maturity. It's underlined children, and then there's young men in there, and you could say young women, and then you could fathers as well, and you could actually imply mothers as well. But you've got to note here that this isn't about physical age. This is a spiritual stage here that we're talking about. 
This is children's stage, young men and young women's stage, fathers and mothers stage. Let me just, for review, just give you some of the characteristics. Stage one for children. Basically, it's this. They have a relationship with Jesus and their sins are forgiven. I, th- I think there's a slide there, Nancy. You can, we'll walk through these. Yeah, not one more here. There we go. Physical children. Spiritual children. Like physical children, if we went into the nursery, we'd find out that life needs to be centered around them. It's about their needs, their desires. They struggle with authority. They don't like people coming up and saying no to them. But like biological children in the spiritual world, we are called to grow up to another phase, another state. And that's the stage two, to become a young man and young woman. And there's really three parts to it. The Word of God is a part of their lives. And they're beginning to understand Satan and sin. And then they're beginning to move towards spiritual strength. See, these are the characteristics. And and I've said this a couple times in the series, but I think when I was growing up, this was the top stage of spiritual maturity, of development. See, there's actually a stage three from 1 John 2 on the screen here. It's a father, or you could say mother. But this maturity is marked by a deepening love relationship with God. It's intimacy. But the fact that they use the word father implies a relationship for this individual that's looking back and he has spiritual children that he's nurturing. And there's an intentionality behind it. See, do we have this vision for taking people from children all the way up to fathers and mothers in their faith? And here's the hard part of it for us. It's not quite as simple as just the education in the school system. There's no five-step process to get people from here to a new place. And there is a journey in this of moving toward to become a father and mother in our faith as well. But how we want to approach this is, I I want to do it by putting a picture on the screen. And uh, this first picture is a picture of a bridge, and some of you might recognize this. This is I-94, and you're standing, the picture is you're in Hudson, Wisconsin, looking back across the St. Croix River toward Minnesota. That's the bridge. And when you drive from Hudson over across the bridge, land on the other side, you are in a new state. You're in Minnesota. But in that, with that bridge, there's something that you really don't notice or we kind of forget about that we really don't see. And I want to put another picture on the screen. This is the picture of the pillars that hold up that very bridge. And we really don't recognize them, but if you did not have these pillars, there would be no way that you'd be able to drive from Wisconsin back toward Minnesota. And here's how we're going to approach it. You understand this, that to move from a child, the state of childhood, to a state of a young man and woman, there needs to be a bridge and a set of pillars that are built to move in one direction. And when you move from a young man to a father and mother in the faith, you understand that there's a place where there's these pillars, these bridges, the bridge that you have to walk over, this needs to be built to get to a new place. So how are we going to approach it really for the rest of the series is that we're going to be looking at these pillars 
that must be in place in order for us to move spiritually in a new direction. And today we begin with one part of one, or really one pillar, and it comes out of verse 13 in 1 John 2, and I'll put that on the screen here. It says this, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You've overcome the evil one. Now that is a broad statement. What is it? What does it mean to overcome the evil one? Uh, But I would say this. This is a critical pillar. And if this one is not in place, it's highly unlikely that you're going to move from a child in your faith to a young man and woman in one's faith. So let me state what this pillar really is about. For your notes, if you're following along in the outline there, I said it this way. A spiritual child must learn to discern the lies of Satan and the lies of this world and their effects in order to move toward spiritual maturity. A child in their faith has to grow to discern what is truth and what is untruth. They must begin to understand that what is biblical doesn't fit with God's heart and understanding. And they must also begin to apply it. And again, if this pillar is not formed, maturity will falter. And it will basically even slide back. So folks, the issue of Satan overcoming the evil one and the issue with sin is a big, big deal. Now, i got to go a side alley. If you're a parent here today, understand that this is a responsibility for you to be teaching your children as well. But here's the deal. One conversation about this issue will not be enough. You know, I, I think back to algebra and, and some of the higher math courses that you have to take, and do you just spend one day on algebra and you got it? And I go, no. Well, you understand the complexity of sin is far more complicated, I think, than we realize. But here's where I, I want to put up another verse on the screen and understand where this really comes from. John 8:44. look how it reads. Now, understand, Jesus is going after the Pharisees here, okay? And this is what he tells them. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That was a harsh statement that he spoke to these men. But here's the key reality for your notes, number one. Realize that all lies, all deceit, and all evil starts with Satan. It points to the depth of who our enemy really is about, is utter deceitfulness. 1 Peter 5.8, I don't have it on the screen, but the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour or consume. He looks to consume unbelievers. He looks to consume followers of Jesus as well. 
See, the greater issue is he's looking to take people to a place and disrupt their lives. Now, here's what I think we assume. When we hear the word Satan and demonic stuff, we kind of tend to think, well, the, the worst stuff is about, for example, demonic possession or oppression in the demon world. And it is an issue to some degree. Matter of fact, I don't know if you know this, a couple years ago around in the area here, the Ouija board was making a, a comeback. I knew about it. And unfortunately, I participated in a couple times when, even back when I was growing up. So it's been around a long time. But I don't know if you realize this with the Ouija board. The Ouija board attracts demonic activity. I, I'm convinced of it. I know it. And there's other games as well. I think of Dungeons and Dragons and some of the dark, demonic games even in the video games. Folks, it attracts the demonic world to those, those pieces of, of, of those, those kind of games. And the reality is that parents at times look at these things and they go, they're innocent, and they go, no. I, I could tell you some stories about it that you just kind of go, What? But even when you look at, at, at young teenagers using this stuff, do they have the understanding to go, evil, stay away? See, we can look at things, and really we don't. I, I think there's a naive, you know, we're kind of naive in some of the areas, even when it comes to the demonic world, when it comes to Satan. Uh, George Barna. Now, in this, one of the... Um, surveys that he took he, he quotes christians but christian this in this term it's a wide term he would he would say this about 60 percent of those who label themselves christians actually are not sure or doubt that satan even exists you go okay what does that say what does that say do we realize that the demonic world is real but it actually is not the most important issue either. Let me give you another key re reality here, number two for your notes. A child, spiritually speaking there, okay, this isn't physical child, must know and understand the father of all lies. Now here's where, this is my term. When I say father here, this is not John 8.44, the father being Satan, okay? This is the lie of lies, Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I need to show you something out of this passage here about the father of lies, the ultimate lie. So it's not Satan here. And, and by the way, if you've never underlined a couple of these verses, if you've never highlighted them, if you've got an electronic Bible, I think you need to do that. Uh, Deanna and I were exposed to some of this stuff years ago, and it, I think it changed the way we even parented. Look at verse Chapter 1, verse 20. Now the context here is that men and women are without excuse. God has revealed himself. Okay, that's kind of the context. But look at what verse 20 reads. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Flat out adultery, false worship there, okay? Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. See, God came to that place where he said, you guys are going down this path, the impurity, the ugliness where you're going. I am going to let you, and actually I'm going to give you over to even more of that. It's, it's a harsh, startling statement there. But he gives them over to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And you can imagine what that looks like. But verse 25, if you've never underlined, this is the one you need to do. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. By the way, the creature there is not Satan. It's the self. But i got to point something out here in your translation. You might have the ESV or NIV or New American Standard Version. And there's a little bit of a misstatement in those versions that I believe is not quite the way it's stated. Matter of fact, if you got a New King James, you're going to find that it's actually, I think, right in the New King James. In verse 25, it says this, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. Well, if you have a New King James, it would say this, they exchanged for the truth, they exchanged it for the lie. Not a lie, the lie. Now, understand the lie. This isn't Johnny coming to you at night and you say, Johnny, did you brush your teeth? Yep. And you know, let me look and check it out. No, this isn't the lie. Okay, it's not like that. This lie is the daddy of all lies. I was going to say mom of all lies, mommy, but I better not. I would get into trouble if I did that, so I'll leave it as dad. Um, they believed the lie, and they lived life differently. What did they do? They lived, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Something changed dramatically, dramatically when the lie was believed. So what's the lie? Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And again, this is a passage that if you never underline, this is absolutely critical, Genesis chapter 3, in our, in, our, in our understanding of the way that life works in that. It reveals how the world is even living in relation to God. But here's where the picture, I've referred to it before, but we're going to go a little bit deeper today in it. Look at Genesis 3, verse 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good 
and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took some fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He's standing right next to her here. This is the big daddy of lies in this setting, in this story. And this lie, the lie, was used to bring Adam and Eve to a place where they took the fruit and it changed everything. It changed their lives forever and it changed the way the world lives forever. Look at the phrase. I want to put a part of this phrase and just go after it a bit. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? It's kind of like this. Did mom really say that you should not take cookies from the cookie jar? Now, did she say cookie or cookies? If she said cookies, you understand it makes a difference. You can take just one and you're okay, right? Do you see how Satan is using a little bit of a play on words and the way he's, he's doing it? But understand what happened at this point. we we got to catch this. Adam and Eve were introduced to doubt for the very first time in their life. Doubt. And this wasn't just any doubt that was being thrown toward them. This was doubt about God. See, Satan is subtle. You know, I think of Wicca and Satan worship. It's out there, and you know, some they're wanting to expose themselves on the visual. You know, even put up, um, you know, displays and such, and go into universities and you know claim what they're doing. But it's interesting when you look at that stuff. That's the upfront stuff. You can recognize pretty quickly and go, no, okay, that's not right. But understand this, Satan doesn't work with the, with the stuff up front much. It's the behind-the-scenes stuff, the lies that he's doing that catches people. He's subtle. See, Satan didn't come to Adam and Eve and say this, your God is really terrible. I don't know why you're following him. Do you know what the response I think of Adam and Eve would have been if, if Satan would have said that? What are you talking about? we got a good God. See, he didn't use a direct approach. He came in the back door creating some doubt. He, he was trying to drive a wedge in the relationship between God and Adam and Eve. Now, here's one of the nuances here I think that we've got to figure out as we dig into this text. Um, when you were growing up, maybe you, if you grew up in a Sunday school or maybe in some other setting, and if someone some wanted to ask you the question, what is sin? What would you say? I, I would challenge you, if you're a parent, to actually ask your kids that. Define sin for you. 
And I think you're going to see the simplicity. For me growing up, basically is this. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And they took that fruit. And they got kicked out of the garden because of it. Is that the deepest that we go in our understanding of sin? That it was just one act of disobedience? Is that how we define Satan? He just tricked us into disobeying God? We've got to go deeper in our understanding of sin. Let me give you a broader understanding of what the lie is here that's going on. For your notes, I define it this way. that It's the father lies, and I want to give you four summaries of, there's four pieces to that what is the lie that's going on here. The first one is this, that God is withholding from you something good. God's keeping something from you that will even make you more happy. He's holding something back that will fulfill you even more. You don't have quite enough fulfillment in your life. And you know what? He's hiding something from you. He's hiding this source of meaning and his other good things. Do you catch the doubt that he's, that he's using for Adam and Eve. He's hiding even greater happiness in your life and more contentedness in your life. Do, do you feel the wedge of what he's trying to do at this point? And it is so subtle. But let me give you another portion of the lie, that God cannot be trusted. Do you catch how God cannot be trusted is a framework of, of all lies that we believe. God's really not good. He really can't take care of you. You need something more. Can I list you some lies that people tend to, might believe? Could be in the church, outside the church. So let me give you the first one, a lie. I have to work all these extra hours so my life or my family's lives will be happy, but it won't hurt the relationships I have. See, for a workaholic, they can justify, and they're believing a lie that it's not going to matter in anybody else's life. Let me give you another one. I will never truly be truly satisfied or fulfilled if I don't have a spouse or if I don't have children. Uh, you know, working in college ministry for years, I had parents that were pressuring their kids to get married. You're too picky. Lower your standards a bit. And you want to go, what? Let me give you another one, a lie. My career will give me my greatest joy and meaning. Man, is this one promoted all over the world? Now, I understand within the church, we're, we're a little bit more, um, we won't say this verbally, but I see lots of people living this. That's their greatest source of joy and pleasure and meaning is work. They believe it on the inside. It's because they live their life that way. And I had a college parent one time, he was heading to college, he was a senior parent, and he was looking to, 
go decide which school and he was going to go into engineering and the parent was pushing him toward an out-of-state school that had a incredible reputation for engineering just because he would go you know he would gain another ten thousand dollars a year and at what cost you know, I find that, for example, parents who won't send their kids to a community college because of deep down, it's the status thing. Why do you send my kid to a community college? It's not status-wise. It's you, you catch the lie that's being believed there. Let me give you another one. A lie. My greatest responsibility is my children and my grandchildren. You know what? I have seen parents enmeshed with their children where it damages the marriage. And this idea that, that our whole life is centered around our children and our grandkids, it becomes an idol. It's an idol in many people's lives. And we just, we believe a lie. If it moves over to that place where it's an idol in our lives. Let me give you another one. One must own a home to be filled and live the ultimate American dream. That's one that the world throws us over and over and over again. And Jesus comes along and says this, Why do you worry about those things? Don't I take care of the birds of the air and feed and clothe them? Won't I take care of you? And then he goes, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't even have a home. Now, is a home wrong? The answer is no. But you're believing a lie if it begins to fill the quest for meaning and purpose and joy. One is succumbing to a lie. Let me step on some toes here. My child must participate in sports to have a good, healthy identity. Folks, this is a lie. See, I'm sure that the Apostle Paul played tons of sports and so he could have a healthy self-esteem. Ken, don't you know that Paul was the greatest hockey player, basketball player that ever lived back in that day? That's how he got to the place where he said, for me to live as Christ was through sports. Okay, a little bit facetious there. Do you catch how subtle lies are and how we live by them? And I don't know if you catch it, but they're pointing so often toward one thing. And, and so the subtle lies point to this place where happiness becomes the goal of our life. That which makes me happy gives me meaning and purpose. Two more components, though. i got to keep going here. For your notes, the next one. Because God cannot be trusted you now can claim the right to decide what is good and what is best and what is morally right. This, in essence, is saying you get to be your own God. That was the, this is the cornerstone of it. Look, let me show you in the verse, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, this is the cornerstone of the lie. And it is the foundational belief of the world in which we live. You can be like God and you can claim the right to determine what is okay and what's not okay. 
Do you catch the depth of the deceit, though, here? Creating the doubt. God, you're holding something back. He's convincing them that God knows that if you taste the fruit, that something will be different. Different than what God intended. And it will be wonderful. And he's holding it back from you. And you know what? You get to be just like God. Now, it's not like God in terms of you can create the universe. That's not what Satan is telling them. That's not that kind of power. He's saying you can have the right to decide just like God and decide what will make you happy. You don't need God to determine what makes you happy anymore. You get the right to decide that money will make you happy. You get the right to decide that having an affair is justified and it will fill the hole of loneliness and make you happy. You get the right to decide when harsh words are spoken. You go, it's okay. They deserve it. See, you even get the right to decide that your spouse is the reason for a poor marriage. You get the right to decide that other people are the reason that your spirituality is being held back. It's a church's problem. You know what? Children do this as well. They claim the right to decide that mom and dad don't know everything. And it's not legitimate. They don't have the right to tell me what to do and to make me unhappy. I get the right to do that. Are you catching the essence of this lie? The lie. Listen to this one close. We even claim the right to decide when it's okay to claim the right to decide if it's right or wrong. As followers of Christ, sometimes we know, okay, God is the one that decides it, but we claim the right to interrupt God and say, I get the right at that moment to decide what's right and wrong. And you realize some of you right now are claiming the right to blow off this passage and just let your mind wander and say, there's another reason why I shouldn't have to listen to this. Do you understand the depth of what this sin is about? You know, I'll give you an example. A friend of mine I talked to last week, and he lives. He, he used to live in Vancouver, but he had a sister in Vancouver who just passed away, and she was 61 years old. And her name was Sandra. And we had, Deanna and I had met Sandra a number of times because Sandra had Down syndrome. And my friend was really in charge of the service and doing the service, part of the, the speaking, the message part of the service. And during that service, he talked about the gift that God had given Sandra. See, God had given Sandra the gift of an extra chromosome. And because of that gift, Sandra, and we knew her, and this is true, Sandra had the ability to love people in such a way that most people with a normal set of chromosomes cannot do. She loved people. And my friend said that if they would have allowed it, the place would have been overflowing because of the way that Sandra loved people. Said it was just an incredible service, and the people that used to take care of her, the home that she lived, was just, they were astounded by what was going on. 
But then he went on to tell me, he, he talked about, you know what, the joy that Sandra had brought to his life and the love that she had given to him as a brother. And then he went on to say this, Ken, do you know that in Europe, 92% of the babies with Downs gets aborted? And in the United States, 75% get aborted. See, the question, who gets the right to decide that when God gives a child a gift of an extra chromosome, that it's bad and that life isn't worth bringing into the world? See, the lie, the lie, is claiming that we have the right to decide what is loving, what is reasonable, what is morally good, what is morally evil. That's the heart of the lie. And, folks, God only has that right. But let me give you one more piece of this this morning. Mankind believes because of that lie that autonomy and independence is a virtue. Adam and Eve doubted. See, God was keeping something from them. Therefore, he can't be trusted. So now we claim the right to decide what is good and what is right, and we also back off and come out from under his rule and reign, and we become independent. We don't no longer have to be under the rule and the reign of God. Do you catch how that is a perceived freedom? God, you decide what's... No, I get to decide. And at that point, we are free. The free to decide. Do you understand what Satan was doing? He gave them freedom. Perceived freedom. And at that moment, they became independent, autonomous, the idea of independence and self-ruling. You get to rule your own world. Everybody gets to decide on their own what's right and wrong. We are free. We are independent. Freedom at last from God who restricts us with all of these rules. You can decide now who you want to sleep with, who to have sex with. You're free to decide where happiness is found. You're free to decide how you value money more than anything else, or homes, or cars, or sports, or education. Satan has now set you free. And you are now autonomous. That is the result of the lie being believed. Let me tell you where I'm going next week overcoming the evil one. We've got to go down one more layer yet. I've got to warn you. Okay. But this idea, understand, of moving from a child in the faith to a young man, you have overcome the evil one. This idea of sin and Satan, we got to figure this out. And again, for you, for you parents, here's the challenge for you. I would challenge you to go at your lunch table today, go to your kids and go, Tell me, what's your definition of sin? How do you do it? Now, Steve's been trying to weave in some of this to the middle school and the high school. But if we don't get this, faith will be stunted. Why? 
because we remain under the umbrella of independence. Independence. I, I don't know if you just catch that. It, it really bugs me because people fight for freedom, fight for freedom to love, freedom to be a, under oppressive rules. And, and Jesus comes along and says, you give up your rights if you want to follow me. Do you see the contradiction there? Overcoming the evil one. Folks, this pillar has got to be built if we're going to help even somebody else move from a child in their faith to becoming a young man and young woman in their faith. we got to understand the lie is a monumental piece into it. Let's stand and pray.